We're about to get underway on this Facebook Live video in just a few minutes. We'll be discussing planning for the future of your special needs child. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for our Facebook Live event, Planning for the Future of Your Special Needs Child. I'm Jess Staub. I'm here on behalf of Stock & Leader Attorneys at Law. Stock & Leader is a regional law firm in central Pennsylvania. It services in the practice areas of personal, public, and business. Joining me is Mac Brillhart. Uh, Mac focuses on preparing estate planning documents such as wills, powers of attorney, living wills and trust. Um, you also often work with matters of guardianships, name changes, adoptions, and the like. So I'm about to turn it over to Mac in just a few moments, but first just wanted to remind all of you who are watching that at any time you're welcome to comment below the video to um, ask any questions that you might have. Um, we will do our best to respond in a timely manner. Just a general note, we can only give fairly general advice today um, as we do not have an attorney-client relationship. So Matt, do you want to start off telling us a little bit more about your background and some of your experience? Sure, thanks Jess. Good evening everybody. As Jess said, my name is Mac Brillhart. I'm an attorney here in uh, York, Pennsylvania, stock and leader. I've been with the firm about eight uh, plus years and I practice uh, largely in estate planning, estate administration, and elder law. I do some other work in the Orphan's Court here locally, uh, and, and quite a bit of local uh, special needs trust work dealing with uh, parents largely that have disabled children. And, and you'll hear me use the term supplemental needs trust, which is really legalese or fancy speak for, for special needs trust, they're, they're synonymous. So if we can talk a little bit more specifically about your work with the parents of special needs children, and what that might look like. So what are some of the unique needs of the parents that you're able to provide help with? Well, I think I'd back up and, and start by saying that any parents out there that have minor children need to be focusing on uh, you know, you know, catastrophic events. What would you do if, if uh, you and your spouse passed away and your minor child, who would that child go to live with? Uh, how would their, the assets they inherit be housed what ages would they be entitled to receive them, for what purposes, who would be in charge of those decisions. And, and so that's just in generality, but I think that folks that have disabled children, it goes beyond that because most non-disabled children, as they get into their late teens and 20s, become emancipated and, and largely are, are get out on their own. And we know that with disabled children, 
parenting can go on for, for much longer. And so the parenting job, although it never really ends, it's, it's much more focused uh, in longevity than parents for a non-disabled child. So I think the planning uh, is, deals with farther out thinking that folks that have non-disabled children would deal with. Um, so we're going to get started taking some of your questions. At any point, you're welcome to submit a question. Simply comment below the video, and we'll try to respond in a timely manner. Um, let's get started, Mac. Please. First question. Um, can other family members leave assets or money to my special needs child in their will, and should they name our trust? Short answer, yes. Uh, I think one of the concepts we always start with when talking about supplemental trusts for disabled children is that folks think when they create a special needs trust that they're creating it now while they're living. Largely with the advent of the ABLE Act, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, most special needs trusts that we create for folks are housed within their will. That, again, that's an important concept, meaning that parents have a will or wills and the trust for the disabled child is within the will, which means that the trust does not actually come into fruition until both parents have passed away. So getting back to your question, the, the issue of can another person leave money to a disabled relative in the trust that the parents set up, the short answer is yes, but I think another consideration is, is that trust, quote, alive yet? Because if the parents haven't both passed away, that trust is sitting barren in the parent's will, and it's not technically live yet. I think that we've seen courts in that situation come up with ideas to honor the wishes of the relative, and, and they can glean from what the trust says uh, within the, the parent's will what the intent was. Uh, however, I think the consideration of dealing with whether that trust is live yet is important. The other thing that should be considered is if I'm an uncle, say, of a, my nephew's disabled uh, and I want to use my, my sibling's trust under, under their will, uh, my sister in that example, do I agree with what my sister has set forth in her trust? Maybe I don't agree with the trustee she picked to be in charge of the money. Maybe I don't agree with the ages or the purposes or terms and conditions of the trust. So I think. Two, two elements there. One is, is the trust live and awake yet? And two, do I agree if I'm the relative, do I agree with the terms and conditions of that trust? If not, I need to create my own trust. Okay. So uh, next question, I'm divorced. Should both my ex-spouse and I have trust under our wills or is only one needed? Yeah, similar question. So again, if, if you and your ex-spouse uh, have the same wishes as to your disabled child, I think you start with that question. Do we want the trusts to contain the same terms and conditions? If yes, we're, we're off and running to a certain point. Secondly, though, who's in charge of holding the money? Who's in charge of deciding when to distribute the money? Who has discretion over how and when things occur? If you and your ex-spouse can agree on the person that you trust to make those crucial decisions, you can use the same trust. If you do not agree on those terms and conditions or who the trustee would be, you certainly should not. Uh, again, that, that the other second consideration comes back to, is that trust alive and awoken yet? 
Uh, does it exist? And usually the trusts aren't created until both spouses have passed away. Sure, sure. Um, so what is a representative payee and how can he or she be utilized? So a representative payee is associated with Social Security benefits. So if you have a disabled child uh, that, that is entitled to SSI benefits, those monies are typically transferred into by automatic uh, deposit into a checking account. And if that disabled person does not possess the capacity to make financial decisions, which is often the case, the representative payee is simply a, is a fiduciary position appointed specific to Social Security benefits to receive them and manage them. And, and they have fiduciary obligations as to they could be called upon by Social Security Administration to account for how the monies are used. It, again, it's a person appointed to watch over Social Security benefits. How do you know if your disabled child is eligible for those Social Security benefits? Well, there's, there's an application process, certainly. So you get to whether the person is, in fact, disabled. And, and there is a process in which you have to apply and, and supply financials and medicals in order to apply for that benefit. Okay. Um, next question for you. If I have two special needs children, do I need to create two separate trusts under my will? That's a tough one. I, I'd say there's reasons to do it and reasons not to do it. So if you have two disabled children, I would say that the benefit of creating one special needs trust for two special needs beneficiaries, the, the large benefit would be cost. Trusts are expensive to administer. They require the filing of tax returns for the tax ID number associated with the trust. And so, of course, having one trust rather than two can bear and cut back on some expense. Uh, on the other hand, I think one of the things that's unique to special needs planning is that disabled folks have very different paths in life. They have different disabilities, they have different needs, they have different housing requirements, different medications. And so if you have a multi-party beneficiary special needs trust, you're gonna be running into, is it possible that the trust gets tapped to the benefit of one special needs beneficiary more so than the other. Of course, splitting the assets out and having two trust shares uh, would certainly equalize the access to the same amount of money for both beneficiaries. Are there any other options besides creating a trust? So could you just give that share to other children and then direct them to use the money to support the special needs sibling? This is a question we get a lot in your county and, and uh, folks want to know, can I skip this whole trust thing and just give it to my brother or give it to my daughter's brother and he can hold it and he knows what to do and he loves his sister and everything will work out fine. And, and so I think that I have yeah, no, no uh, concern that these are good people and that they would honor wishes, but in, in the lawyer world, we see bad stuff happen frequently. And so if the money's given to the brother, if he's in a car accident, that money's subject to his creditors. If he's divorced, subject to an ex-spouse because it's not being held in the name of the disabled person, it's being held in an individual capacity of the sibling. And so the idea of a trust is, we refer to trust as fortresses, right? They're impenetrable. And so a creditor of someone cannot put their hand into the trust. So I think in a, in a perfect world, if he doesn't get in a car accident, doesn't get divorced, does what he says he's gonna do, yeah, but that's probably not real life. The other thing that can happen in that situation is brother dies 
and the money goes into his estate. Well, what does his will says? I leave it all to my uh, leave it all to my wife and my children. Well, now the money has gotten out of the family intention. So a lot of what ifs there. I would stay away from that. Okay. So just a reminder: there are several people joining in. Um, just to let everyone know, you're welcome to ask a question at any point in time. Feel free to comment below the video and we'll try to respond in a timely manner. We're trying to give fairly general advice today because we don't have a client-attorney relationship, uh, but we are happy to, to try to respond the best that we can. Uh, so next question I have for you, just to talk a little bit more about logistics. When a parent or a guardian passes away, how is that money actually transferred into the trust that's been set up? Yeah, great question. So this, this is key in that folks set up a trust under their wills typically, or even have what we would call an inter vivos trust, which is that rather than having the trust contained within the will, the trust is created while the person's living as a separate living entity while they're alive. Regardless, you set up an entity like this and I can't tell you how many times folks don't realize that getting the money into the trust is really important. What is the purpose of setting up a trust if it's not funded properly? So for instance, when someone passes away, they typically have two, quote, pots of money. They have the money that they own that comes under their will. We refer to that as probate money. And then they have money that's outside of their will, which we refer to, not surprisingly, as non-probate money. And so in that vein, if, if I have a will set up and I have a trust within it for my special needs child, that will is gonna control money that's not beneficiary designated. So that, for instance, that would be my house and my car and my personal property and my vanilla bank accounts. Those things are not beneficiary designated. So when they come into the will, the will effectively should say, all the money for my son Johnny goes into Johnny's special needs trust. That happens automatically because the money got funneled into the will. But for non-probate money, life insurance policies, investment accounts, uh, retirement accounts, if the trust has retirement language in it, those things each have beneficiary forms. Your life insurance policy has a four-cornered form to it. That is effectively the will for that life insurance policy. So if you name your son Johnny on the life insurance policy, Johnny gets the money. Johnny touching the money would... Uh, cause him to lose his benefits, his housing, his SSI, his Medicaid. And so if you think of this conceptually, the life insurance beneficiary designation should say supplemental trust for Johnny under my will. The naming of the trust on the form allows the money to pass over Johnny's head into the will and get funneled in with the probate money. So again, I think that the takeaway there is if you possess non-probate money, which again is referred to as beneficiary designated money, life insurance, retirement, investments. Those assets are controlled by a form. The form needs to reference the trust. One other consideration there is if you have qualified accounts, IRA, 401k, retirement money, the payment of qualified money into a special needs trust can be detrimental for tax purposes unless that trust has retirement trust language in it. Long-winded answer, sorry. That's, that's a good answer. Um, so just for people who are tuning in, um, once again, I'm Just Staub. I'm here on behalf of Stock and Leader, Attorneys at Law. This is Mac Brillhart. Uh, he's joining us. He's one of the attorneys at Stock and Leader, offering some advice today about um, how to plan for the future of your special needs child. We'll take another question. 
Um, should I disinherit a disabled son to ensure that he can receive government benefits like SSI, which you mentioned before, if I pass away? Well, yeah, it sort of resets the presentation. So the answer is, is no. You should not be disinheriting your child uh, to protect his or her benefits because you can use a supplemental needs trust to protect the benefits. So let's reset the concept, which is if you have a disabled child and that disabled child is either now or will be down the road on some sort of what we call means-tested government benefit. Means-tested means that the government benefit is tied to asset rules. So for instance, SSI has a $2,000 threshold that if a recipient of SSI possesses more than $2,000, that SSI is no longer uh, enabled for that person. Therefore, if your son is on Medicaid or SSI, those are the two means-tested benefits we see the most, not disinheriting, but instead naming a supplemental needs trust would be the way to have the money benefit the disabled child, but not have him or her lose the benefits. All right, next question. Um, what happens to the trust in the event of death to the disabled trustee? So you've set up the trust and then the trustee actually passes away. Right, so I, I don't, I'm not sure if the question was intended to reference the trustee or the beneficiary, but let's just touch on both. So the trustee is the person that manages and is in charge of the money mm -hmm. for the beneficiary. So most trusts should say, if Bob, the trustee, becomes disabled, passes away, wishes not to serve, then as a contingency, Joe will serve as the next successor trustee. So trust should have contingency language built into them that name another fiduciary to step up. However, I think maybe the question may have intended to talk about what happens to the money in the trust when the disabled beneficiary dies? Well, that depends on who sets up the trust. If the money that funded the trust was never the beneficiary's money to begin with, so mom and dad die and they leave money to their, their disabled son, Johnny, that money was never Johnny's, Johnny never touched it, and so we call those trusts third-party funded trusts because they were funded not by Johnny, the first party. Those, those trusts are permitted to say that at Johnny's death, the money can go to Johnny's sister, Sally. So you can again set up the trust to say, it's to benefit Johnny for his entire life, and at his death, it goes to his sister, or to a charity, whatever you might have there. However, if the money is funded through Johnny, so let's say Johnny's in a car accident which causes him to become disabled, now it's Johnny's money that's funding the trust, which we would call self-settled or a first-party trust. Those trusts are different. Effectively, the government says, we're going to allow Johnny to put the money into the trust and get her, and avoid the asset threshold rules. However, because it was his money that funded it, when he passes, whatever benefits the government paid out for his Medicaid must first be paid back at his death. And if there's excess money beyond that, it can be inherited. So that answer is, comes, hinges upon where the money that funded the trust comes from. If it comes from a third party that's not the beneficiary, the trust should dictate where it goes after the beneficiary dies. If it comes from the beneficiary, him or herself, the trust should reference the need for the government to be paid back before it passes to another individual. Okay, all right. All right, uh, next question. 
How should I secure my child's future if they have zero assets and no money to put aside in a trust or account? So basically, all that, that this person is going to have is the child's income, whatever it may be. Well, a couple things there. One, you know, folks are often not aware of the, the web of benefits that's available for folks. So I think reaching out to your local caseworker, your, your local programming, the Commonwealth, the state programming, the federal programming, you want to make sure that, God forbid, you pass away, that your child has every opportunity and benefit that's available to him or her. That's sort of non-monetary, just a support system in check. However, uh, aside from that, if you're concerned that you're going to pass away as a parent and your disabled child is not going to be inheriting anything from you, frankly, because you don't have anything to leave behind, one of the things you could look at there would be a life insurance policy. Life insurance policies, you can buy term. I'm not a life insurance expert or a financial analyst, so throw that out there, but I do understand that the term life insurance is generally affordable, and so you could buy a, a life insurance policy on you as the parent, and you would name your child's trust, and you could fund that trust with seemingly a, a significant amount of money with little out of pocket. So they would still need to consult an attorney to set up that trust, even though they're, they're giving the money through life insurance. Precisely. Good, good point. So just by buying the life insurance policy doesn't get you the trust, per se. So you would meet with a life insurance expert, purchase a policy, and then meet with an attorney that would draft the special needs trust for you. All right, uh, next question. I plan on moving out of state when my child graduates from high school. If the child were to stay in Pennsylvania, but the parent is not, uh, will a guardian need to be appointed or will the parent be able to continue that role as the guardian even though he or she is out of state? Well, let's start with the, the point, of, point of guardianship is that some disabled folks are incapacitated and, and some are not. And so I have disabled clients that have capacity they're able to convey information and receive information and just because you're disabled does not mean you have a guardian. However, largely there are disabled folks that cannot convey and impart information and so they have to have a guardian in charge of their money and their residential and medical situation. So if you're a parent that is serving as a guardian of your child and you move out of state, Pennsylvania does allow for out-of-state guardians to serve so you wouldn't necessarily need to have a new appointment take place I think the question gets down to practicality of can you be a guardian for someone if you're in Nevada and they're in York? You know, with financial decisions more and more, we can do those sort of things over the internet. Uh, I think that comes down to what, what sort of medical information can you utilize? Can you get involved with doctor decisions and residential decisions if you're, if you're not local? Uh, but to get back to the question, there's no per se prohibition uh, about an out-of-state guardian. Just to take a moment to have a brief pause. I'm Jess Staub here on behalf of Stock and Leader. Joining me is Matt Brillhart, one of the attorneys at Stock and Leader who handles estate planning. Uh, we're talking today about planning for the future of your special needs child. At any point in time, you're welcome to ask a question just by commenting below the video. And we'll try to respond in a timely manner. Uh, we're going to keep rolling with a couple more questions. That's all right. Uh, when is the best time to create a special needs trust? Is there any time that's better than another? Well, I th the best time to set up a supplemental needs trust would be when you know there's a need, right? So if you have a disabled child or a disabled beneficiary, someone that relies upon you, in estate planning uh, realm, we think of estate planning as writing documents as if they'll, quote, be used tomorrow. 
Now that's a morose thought and depressing perhaps, but when we write a will or a trust, we think of that as potentially being used tomorrow. The person's in a car accident on the way home from signing the will. And so I think if you've identified a need of someone that you care about and love that relies upon you for anything from income to asset to travel to taking someone to appointments, giving them residential care, that trust should be established as soon as possible if there's a need there. So technically, you should be thinking about setting up a will if you have any children, any dependents. I think that's fair to say. I think you have to, again, the identification of someone's reliance upon you, uh, if you have a minor beneficiary, uh, it is key whether it's the person would be disabled or not. What specific protections can a special needs trust provide for my child versus another child? Yeah, again, a good way to reset the program if folks are just joining us again is that the idea of a supplemental or special needs trust is the idea that a disabled person that's on a government benefit cannot possess excess resources, and that limit can be as low as $2,000. And so if parents passed away and left money to a child uh, and, and, and it was $2,500, for instance, that $2,500 receipt can cause that person to lose their, their Medicaid insurance, their SSI income, their residential group home abilities. And so the Supplemental Needs Trust is a way to leave money for the benefit of that person without them directly owning it and thereby violating the asset test. Sure, sure. So for anyone who's joining us, just a reminder, you're welcome to ask any questions at any time just by commenting below the video on the screen. We'll try to respond in a timely manner. Um, just a couple more questions, Mac, uh, that I'm thinking of. Can I name my child's special needs trust as the beneficiary of my life insurance policy or retirement benefits? Yeah, so we touched on this earlier. Good, good question. And so life insurance policies are an asset that we see frequently funding special needs trust. And so the idea again would be that your life insurance policy is not controlled by the terms and conditions within your will, but rather it's controlled by the beneficiary designation associated with it. So if you have your, your spouse, for instance, named as the 100% primary beneficiary in your life insurance and you have a disabled child and there is a trust under your will for that disabled child, you would want to name the trust itself under your will and not the individual's name. That's key to making sure the money does not disturb the benefits. Sure. So there's actually a, a question coming in. How much does it typically cost to set up a trust? That's a good question. It is a good question. So uh, let's, let's start with the, the more traditional consults we run into, which is a parent does not necessarily want to set up a trust and put money in it now, but rather they want to set up the trust under their will, and the trust is not truly created and funded until the parent passes. That's the more traditional uh, event that we're meeting with folks over. I would say that we, I'm going to give a range here because that's what we have to do because everyone has different circumstances, but a typical will that we would write for folks would be somewhere in the neighborhood of two to $400 for an individual. And I would say that a special needs trust uh, would probably get you somewhere double that, maybe four to $800 total. Um, part of what we do as attorneys that meet with folks that have special needs beneficiaries is we're free to chat with you uh, at no cost to discern exactly who the beneficiary is, what your assets are. And so I think we can, I'm giving you a range and punting a little bit, 
but I would say that uh, you know if you if you wanted to follow up and talk about that, we could pin down a more precise answer. Sure. So uh, another question: What types of assets can I use to fund my child's special needs trust? So you know you want to set one up. What types of assets should you include? Right. So I, I'd start by asking the individual: What what do you want to go to the disabled individual? and not go to the disabled individual. Perhaps you have two children and one is disabled and one is not. So I think you start by creating a financial statement and listing you know, your real estate and your financial accounts, your life insurance, your retirement, and identifying which of the assets you wish to pass to the disabled individual. Once you've identified those assets, again, we can have them pass into the trust, whether they are designed by beneficiary asset or non-beneficiary probate asset. If you have a retirement account, this is key, we discussed it before, if you have a retirement account, a qualified account, there are tax repercussions to having a qualified account paid into a trust. So you want to make sure that you talk to a specialist that understands how to design a trust with retirement features. Next question. Um, who will manage my child's special needs trust if I pass away? So that's the identification of the quote trustee. So the trust terms will dictate when, for how much, for what causes money can be distributed to the beneficiary or probably even more often to the beneficiary's vendor. So if there was a particular bill that needed to be paid for the beneficiary, we prefer to see the trustee pay it to the vendor and not to the beneficiary. That could be for capacity reasons or the ownership of money reasons. Who you name as a trustee is vital. You, we see two trustees out there. We see what I'll call corporate or professional trustees, which would be trust companies or banks. Uh, we also see lay person trustees, which may be a family member or a friend. And of course, there's benefits to each. Uh, lay trustees typically don't charge uh, compensation for serving. And if they do, the compensation might be less than what a corporate or professional trustee would, would charge. So there's a little bit of cost benefit analysis there. However, the ability of a corporate professional trustee, an entity that's done this for dozens of years and does it professionally and knows the rules has some merit as well. And so I think sitting down with a professional, an attorney that does this routinely to peg what this, the types of questions that trustee might face is important in selecting a lay versus a corporate trustee. We have a few more people joining us, so just to reiterate, I'm Jess Staub. I'm here on behalf of Stock & Leader, Attorneys at Law. Joining me is Matt Brillhart, one of the attorneys at Stock & Leader. If you have any questions at any time, you're welcome to comment below the video and we'll try to respond in a timely manner. We're giving fairly general advice today as we don't have a client-attorney relationship. Um, next question we have is a little bit more specific of a situation. Um, in addition to my disabled daughter, I also have a married adult son. He is designated as a trustee for my daughter in the event that I would pass away. So kind of like we talked about before, for people who've been watching this whole time, you have one sibling there. Um, if he and his wife were to divorce, would his wife be entitled to half of the assets of my daughter's trust? So if the trust is designed properly, the short answer is no. So again, the concept of a trust is that the trustee has a duty to manage, distribute, watch over the money, but it's not the trustee's money. And, it's, and frankly, it's not the beneficiary's money either. The trust itself is an entity that should be creditor-proof. And so 
uh, a divorce of a trustee should not allow for the trustee's ex-spouse to have any access to the trust funds as far as equitable distribution is concerned. Okay. Next question. As the parent of a special needs child, is it best for me to serve as the trustee or should I designate a professional corporate trustee? Well, I think again I'd start by asking if, if you are a parent we continue to talk about what we call testamentary trust, which means that the trust is under one's will, which again, I can't stress that enough, means the trust is not funded and created until the death of the parent. So if, you are, if you're creating a testamentary trust for your child, it's not possible for you to be the trustee of that trust because you'd be deceased when it's funded. Uh, however, if you created what we call an inter vivos trust, which would be a trust that you've actually created during life, and again, we'll talk about ABLE here in a few minutes, I think. The ABLE Act has, I've seen inter vivos trusts be used less frequently given the, the prominence of the ABLE Act. You could serve as the trustee of your child's trust if you created it during your life. Short answer, if you're creating it under your will, it's not possible. Why don't we just talk about the ABLE account now, if that works. What is an ABLE account? Let's start with that. And would it be beneficial for a parent to set one up for a disabled child? Sure. So the ABLE Act is relatively recent in Pennsylvania. It's, it's, I'll call it a glorified savings account. It doesn't technically need to be a savings account. It can be an investment account, a checking account. But it's a financial account that allows for, uh, and the account owner is the beneficiary. So that's different, right? We keep talking about trusts. The beneficiary does not own the trust. That's the whole concept because the beneficiary can't own excess assets or he or she'll lose the government benefits. Well, the ABLE account is a huge exception to that. And so money can be placed into an ABLE account, a qualified ABLE account for the beneficiary. And the beneficiary that we would refer to in trust land is the account owner. But the ownership of those monies does not count towards the asset testing for SSI and Medicaid. There's limits, however. So for instance, Folks can only, can only place into the account for that person up to $15,000 a year currently. Folks out there might be aware of there's an annual gift exemption that we can gift. If I were to gift to Jess, I can gift up to her $15,000 a year without gift tax implications. The annual limits on folks putting money into an ABLE account for the ABLE account owner is tied to the annual gift tax exemption. So there's limits as to how much money can be placed in it. There's also a lifetime limit right now for ABLE accounts that's right around $511,000. $511, so that's, that's a whole lot of money. Um, that's tied to the 529 standard. So we're seeing folks start to place money into ABLE accounts. It's a new vehicle, it's an exception. And ABLE accounts can be used for all sorts of benefits for that individual, could be travel, uh, it could be uh, prepaying a uh, funeral or burial. It can be for uh, educational expenses, technology, fees, things like that. And so the ABLE account is something that's becoming more and more prominent. Thank you. Just want to take a moment to um, welcome the folks who are joining us. If you have a question at any time, you're welcome to comment below the video and we'll try to respond in a timely manner. Um, going back to the ABLE account is what we've been talking about. Are there any restrictions on setting up that account? Well, I talked about the amount, lifetime. I talked about the annual, uh, we'll call it the donor's annual amount that can be placed into the account. They, I think that the more important question is, are there restrictions on how the money is used? And so 
there there are restrictions. They have to be what they're called able qualified expenses. And so I, I gave uh, I gave a, a little itemization of what some of those are. Um, the able accounts are governed. Uh, we're in Pennsylvania here by the Commonwealth, and so there are restrictions on both how much money can go in, both annually and total, and there are also restrictions as to how the money can come out. So again, you want to make sure that you are, are dealing with a qualified individual when you set those accounts up. And of course, during the lifetime of the account, you're following the, that's called distribution rules associated with them. Awesome. We have another question coming in actually related to the ABLE account. Do you have information as to where we can set up or start an ABLE account for our children? Uh, the best place to start is on the Commonwealth website. So uh, I, we can try to get that while we're here today, but the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is governs uh, the, the supervision and oversight of the ABLE Act. And so literally when this was passed as legislation, the first place I went was on the website to read about it and learn about the, the rules and regulations associated. So uh, if you simply go ahead, we'll get you the name of the website by, by the end of conclusion of the presentation. But if you were to Google, for instance, uh, Pennsylvania ABLE Act, it'll take you right to the website. They have, they have a great website there that, re that references everything from frequently asked questions to the rules associated with it. So for folks who are joining us, I'm Jess Staub. I'm here on behalf of Stock and Leader, Attorneys at Law. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm joined by Mac Brillhart, uh, one of the attorneys at Stock and Leader. Uh, we're taking your questions today about planning for the future of your special needs child. <coughs> and just a couple more questions for you, Mac. What is the difference between a guardian and a trustee? It's kind of taken a step back here, sure. looking at the overall picture. What are some of the, the differences? So a trustee is a financial role uh, of the individual that's named within the trust to manage uh, and, overse and oversee the assets. So again, uh, trustee is limited to the money within inside the trust versus a guardian. So there, there's two types of guardians that exist. There's, there's quote, a guardian of a person and the guardian of the person would be in charge of the person, which would be medical decisions and residential decisions. That's called them non-financial decisions versus a guardian of an estate. And so the guardian of an estate would be the person that's in charge of the money for an incapacitated person. Let's make an example. If I'm an incapacitated person and I have $1,000 in my checking account, that's in my name. The guardian of the estate would be in charge of the money in my name because it's not within a trust. On the other side, my parents created a, a supplemental needs trust for me that has $100,000 in it. The guardian of the estate is not a fiduciary to the money within the trust. Trustee handles trust money, guardian handles non-trust money. We have another question coming in. My daughter will be 21 in June. We are now preparing for group home. Do we apply for SSI or disability for our daughter? Well, to get into you know which benefit to apply for, we really need to have more specific specific information about your daughter. Um, again, not to punt on questions like that, but this is really meant to be for generality here. Um, you can obviously contact our office. I'm happy to talk to you. But the benefits uh, of SSI versus SSDI are are vastly different, and and that would get back into the her medical circumstances. Um, for the folks who are joining us, you're welcome to ask questions at any time by commenting below the video and we'll try to respond in a timely manner. Um, 
Mac, another fairly general question. What's a common misconception about setting up a special needs trust? Yeah, well, I mentioned this quite a bit. I think when folks come in and, and, and I meet with them, they typically say, I want to set up a special needs trust for my uh, disabled child. And again, that setting up the trust for your disabled child does not necessarily mean that you're going to create an account right now and put money in it. Uh, it means typically that if that child is going to continue to receive support, financial from you, residential, medical from the parent, the parent typically doesn't want to hand over assets until they both passed away. And so the misconception is I'm here to set up a trust and we do set up a trust. We set up, you know, the, the entity to be funded when the parents pass. Uh, and, and typically it takes a little explanation to clear that up, but that entity is not created or funded until both pass. There are other ways though, if you wanted to fund an ABLE account, you can do that during uh, your lifetime for your disabled child. And you can also even set up an intervivos trust uh, if you wish for your child. Another question, uh, we just applied for, uh, I'm assuming social security SSI. My son receives it now. Says he or we claim this income for tax purposes. Yeah, again, I'm not, I'm not going to take uh, a tax questions. I'm not an accountant, so I'm an attorney, and uh, I'm, I'm not going to answer that one. I apologize. That's all right. Um, any, other, any other general things that you think we should be covering today, Mac, for the people who are watching? Um, anything else that people should know um, as a parent of a special needs child? Yeah, I think one of the things we run into frequently is dealing with uh, parents when their children turn 18 and they're disabled. Um, parents are often offended when they walk into the doctor's office or uh, in an academic setting and the school or the doctor says, your son has turned 18, your daughter has turned 18, and we can no longer talk to you about your son or daughter's medical affairs or academic affairs and, and that parent is offended by that because they've continued to take care of the child and they will continue to take care of the child even past the age of majority. Uh, if your child has some level of capacity to understand decisions uh, and evaluate information, uh, it, it's best for you to have your child sign a power of attorney when your child turns 18. If your child does not sign a power of attorney, you would have to go through a guardianship process instead, which is, can be expensive as opposed to a power of attorney and also involves going to court. And that process, although it's not terrible, is, is not that pleasant. So I would say if you, one of the takeaways would be if you have a child that's gonna turn 18 and you think the child can understand what a power of attorney means, it would be a good idea to go down that road. A really good question. What is involved in setting up guardianship? So guardianship, if you have to go down that route, uh, you would file a guardianship petition with your local orphans court. Uh, so whatever county that you're living in or the child is living in, you file a guardianship petition. Uh, that petition is then received by the orphans court judge and there is a hearing scheduled. And the hearing is scheduled and, and so the parties have to go, you and your child for instance would come to court, uh, you typically have to have a physician testify, uh, typically by phone, but the physician needs to testify that the proposed incapacitated person alleged is in fact incapacitated. So 
We go to court, doctor testifies that the child is incapacitated, and at that point, uh, there's additional testimony from uh, the proposed guardian, maybe the parent, and the judge issues an order from there. And that order then sort of goes with you in life to demonstrate to medical providers and uh, financial institutions that you're court appointed. One of the unusual rules in Pennsylvania is that a parent, this will seem odd, cannot be the sole guardian of the child's money. So we're talking about guardian of a state. So there, the, the law essentially says that if, uh, if a parent needed to be in charge of a child's money as guardian, there has to be a co-guardian that's a person other than the parent, him or herself, do it. So there's sort of a watch over what's happening. Uh, we're going to start to wrap it up, so if anyone does have any last-minute questions, feel free to comment now. Um, we're nearing the end. Um, one thing that I want to mention is how people can reach Stock and Leader. You know, you have a website, stockandleader.com. Do you want to comment a little bit more about how people might be able to get in touch with you if they have additional questions? Well, yeah, the website, uh, www.stockandleader.com. Our main office number is 717-846-9800. Uh, uh, my direct dial is 717-849-4106. So uh, our email contacts and things like that are on the website as well. So feel free to reach out to us if you have questions. Another last minute question here, will we get much of this information during the school year that our child turns 18? So is there a way that parents will receive some of this information as their child begins to turn 18? Maybe the person can clarify when you say this information, I'm not sure if I understand what information you're looking for. Maybe um, setting up a trust perhaps, or I know you mentioned setting up a trust that should really be done as soon as it's deemed necessary. It doesn't have to be when a child turns 18. Yeah, again, I'm not, I'm not clear on the question. I mean, there, there are seminars that occur when you say, are you gonna get more information during the school year? I'm not sure if you meant from me or from our law firm. Um, I, I you know, typically would uh, keep your eyes open for special needs events like this. There, there are times that we go out in the community and give seminars, uh, but again, our contact information is there. I'm not, I'm not quite clear on the question. Sure. Um, well, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to do this Facebook Live event today. I'm hoping that it really helps several of our parents who were tuning in. Um, oh, here's some more information okay. on what they were looking for. Um, they were looking for information on guardianship and power of attorney. Okay. Uh, well, again, if, if you have particular interests that you would want answered, you can contact us to talk about guardianship versus power of attorney. Other than that, I think you'd have to sort of do some reading on your own. And, and of course, keep Stock and Leader in mind. We do give routine presentations about not only supplemental needs trust, but guardianships and powers of attorney. We have uh, blogs and uh, written materials that we produce on our website that you can get there uh, frequently. But if you have questions, let us know. Otherwise, I just try to keep after the uh, the website to look for specific information regarding those items. One of the questions that we talked about earlier, and I, I just want to go back for it for, for just a minute because I think it was a really good question, um, about the difference between a guardian and a trustee. Um, so just that question made me think of it again. If you could elaborate again a little bit on what that difference is. Yeah. A guardian, so I get back to there's two types of guardians, right? There's a guardian of person and there's a guardian of a state. So if you had a disabled child who turned 18, and that disabled child did not have the capacity to understand and sign a power of attorney, then there is need for a guardianship typically. 
And so there would be a guardian of the child who's now an adult person making residential and medical decisions for the, for the individual. There would also be a guardian of a state, which would be in charge of the individual's money. So for instance, the individual's social security, checking account money, those monies are not in a trust versus money that would typically be placed in trust for the individual or flows into the trust when the individual's parents died. So if you think about that again, you have a bucket of money that we'll call trust money, the trustee's in charge of that money, and then you have money that's not in trust that would be very limited typically to a checking account, maybe a vehicle, uh, Social Security benefit, SSI, and so guardian in charge of non-trust money, trustee in charge of, charge of trust money. Terrific. Uh, we talked about those ABLE accounts earlier, and I just want to give that web address for anyone who is interested in finding out more information. That's www.paable.gov. So again, that's www.paable.gov. And we will post that then as well. Um, someone commented, you know, thank you. It's, it's scary and very complicated to understand all of this. You've been very helpful, Max. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this Facebook Live event today about planning for the future of your special needs child. Again, if they want to reach out to you, um, do you want to just let them know the website, again, for Stock and Leader? Sure, sure. It's, again, stockandleader.com, uh, and our main number is, uh, seven, phone number is 717-846-9800. My direct dial is 717-849-4106. If you are on the website, uh, my email address is on there as well. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to everybody, and, and uh, thank you, Jess. Sure. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Have a good evening.